I want you to find two places of Scripture this morning. 1 Timothy chapter number 3. 1 Timothy chapter number 3. And Acts chapter number 6. 1 Timothy 3. And Acts chapter number 6. Again, it's good to see all of you. It's good to have our visitors. Just good to be in the Lord's house. The Lord's afforded us another day of life. And we want him to receive honor from our lives and from our assembly today. 1 Timothy 3, as you find verse 8, would you stand with us, please? We'll read down through verse number 13. And then hold your place here. We'll come back to it. We're not going to deal with either of these passages in a lengthy manner today. But we do want to cover them. 1 Timothy 3, beginning verse 8 through verse 13. Moreover... Um, Let's see, excuse me, verse 8. I started, was trying to start in verse 7. Verse 8, likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, and let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, Sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now you might want to put your ribbon there, your Bible marker, because we'll come back to it. We're going to start the message this morning in our text from Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Where the Bible says, and in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Would you pray with us in force, please? Our Father, as we bow before you, it is to thank you for your goodness, your grace. Thank you for our people here that make up our church, each man, each lady. Each young person, thank you for our visitors today. Father, if one has gathered with us, lost without Christ, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, we know as uh, Lord is so true that salvation is a revelation to the lost man of his lost condition and then also the sinlessness and sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross at Calvary. Help that one among us that may be lost today never has come to Christ. Help them to see that. Help them to know that even this day. 
We pray, Lord, for this service, Lord, that, uh, that uh, you'll get honor to yourself. We thank you for these two portions of Scripture and the instruction that comes from them. Help us, Lord, as we look through them, these passages, um, to have the mind of God, uh, both in the pulpit and in the pew. As we uh, cast a vote here in just a little while as church members, Lord, help us to do so prayerfully and to do so carefully. And Father, we'll give you all the honor and the glory for it. We thank you, Lord, for your blessings upon us. We know ourselves to be unworthy. Lord, you've still chosen to bless us, and we thank you for it. We praise you for it. We thank you most of all for the gospel of Jesus Christ, how that he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Thank you for this privilege to be in your house. May the Spirit of God help us just now. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen and amen. Thank you for standing. Knowing the very brief business we have at hand at the close of the service, I wanted to look through these two passages of Scripture uh, this morning in the service. Felt impressed to do so, as a matter of fact. I don't know that we'll do this every year as we um, will vote when we have a deacon rotate off and we need to put another one on to serve alongside two other men given us three active deacons at any time. I don't know that I'll do this every year, but we probably will come back to it um, maybe every second or third year as a reminder. Um, I'm grateful for this opportunity as a church to be able to do this. It will be a blessing uh, to us along the way. You men will remember it was back last year we Uh, Got all of you together back here in the large Sunday school room, and we discussed a couple of matters of business as it concerned our church grounds. Those matters were discussed, and we came to a resolution about those. And that's when I mentioned to our men about the need for deacons. It is a biblical office. As a matter of fact, there are only two biblical offices for the New Testament church listed in the New Testament. That is the pastor and the deacon. Now, there are people who hold positions in our church, just like they do in any other church, But there are only two offices that are listed in the New Testament being those two we just mentioned, that being the pastor and the deacon of of the local church. When I mentioned that to the men, some of them mentioned to me and before the other men that there was a time when had there been some leadership established in the church, perhaps it could have kept down a little bit of confusion. Usually when there's confusion in a church, there's good people on both sides of the matter. And, and I mentioned a second thing, that being some accountability. does not hurt to put checks and balances in place and have some accountability and have leadership. Who knows? God may call me home today. I plan after the service to go see Harry and sit with him for a little while. Our children and our grandchildren are coming over in honor of my wife's birthday this evening. We're going to grill out and, and party uh, till midnight. Wait a minute, I lost my mind just for a second. Uh, we, uh, they're coming over. They're going to do the grilling and the cooking. Of course, you're looking at the grill guy, I'm sure, and who's going to have to clean up after it's all over with. But I'm glad the kids and grandchildren won't do that for their mother. You, you should want to do for yours if she's still living. But who knows? Who knows? My wife may be at Tudor's planning a service in the morning, a memorial service or a funeral service. We just don't know. And I don't, uh, we have a good church. We have a very good church. 
I don't know if you ever consider that or not. My wife and I mention that every day of our lives. If I don't bring it up, she brings it up. If she doesn't bring it up, I bring it up. Your names are mentioned in our home all the time. Regularly, your names are mentioned in our home. I'm grateful for the good spirit among our, our, the, our local body, our assembly here, our church. Uh, we don't have any big eyes, little U's. You, you're welcome. Those of you who are visiting, you're welcome uh, uh, to come our way. Uh, we want the doors to always be open. But uh, it wouldn't take but uh, something of a minute matter to come up. Uh, let's just suppose there's a car accident in my life this evening. And uh, it left me maimed for life. Or a massive stroke or something took place. You're going to need somebody to look to last couple of years of my life, even the preaching has been geared in that direction, whether you've been aware of that or not. I want to, this church, I want it to go on. When, when Ken Trivet, Brother Ken and I were talking during our missions conference about Brother Daniel Trantham and Lana and the children going that way. And he said something to me that I greatly respect and appreciate. He said, I don't want to give now 10 plus years and a few more uh, pastoring the church and Sherry laboring the way Sherry labors and just turn it over to someone that's going to let it go to nothing. And everything that's been worked for just dissolve. And I appreciate that. And that's why he will, and Daniel and Lana and Sherry will have a lot of long, hard, face-to-face talks in days to come. And I respect both sides of that equation up there. But... Um, but should something happen, that's simple enough, isn't it? That's understandable enough. You need to be able to say, hey, our deacons, our active deacons are Jay and, and uh, Chris and Jeff right now. And so uh, let's call them. Let's look to them. They're going to have to step forward and, and lead the church at that point. I hope you understand my heart uh, when I say that. When I spoke to the men about it and said something about accountability and leadership and those sorts of things, David Box said there was once... Uh, there was a time uh, when uh, the mayor of Atlanta, Georgia, and the councilman, and maybe the city attorney, a number of them were aboard an air flight, and it crashed. And, and just in a matter of seconds, the city of Atlanta was left without any leadership at all. And you wouldn't want to be left that way as a church congregation, would you? You would want for there to be uh, some things in place, some people in place that could just take the reins and steer the cart and keep things moving. Um, I understand that, um, you know, we're here in the South. Some churches have deacons. Our church never had deacons until last year. I respect that. But a number of men that don't want deacons don't want them because they've been mistreated by a deacon or by, by a group of deacons. For example, uh, Brother Doug Jones was pastor of Victory Baptist Church, I suppose, over 50 years. He did not want to have deacons. He fought deacons. He'd tell you that. As a matter of fact, he told a number of people that. While preaching revivals through the years, I sat on the church pew and heard it. And the reason why was because the old deacons, when he was out the six years, he was out at Hurricane. The old deacons fought him. They fought him every step of the way. As a matter of fact, he sat down. He said one of the most embarrassing times in the ministry was when he sat down in the clergy chair after making announcements and they had put tacks in the seat. And he sat down upon those tacks, and they thought it was funny. They did what they can, could to humiliate him. He said shortly thereafter, there was a deacon's meeting in the large Sunday school room in the back wing, the back hall. And he said, those men were just belligerent to me. 
He said, so I came straight out that Sunday evening to the service and said, as long as I remain pastor of this church, we will uh, we'll never have another deacon's meeting as long as I'm here. Now, that was the old men that passed away years and years ago. I didn't know them. I couldn't call any of their names. Wouldn't dare trying. And I didn't say that to embarrass. I don't know who their families would be. But I've not had experiences like that through the years. There have been some disagreements along the way. I don't know that disagreements always, uh, that it always has to be a bad thing. You, you ought to be able to sit down with another man and look him in the eye and work through differences. But the truth of the matter is there's a biblical basis uh, for having deacons in the local church. And we have three that will serve uh, on this rotation basis. Uh, this isn't a competition between the men of our church. This is not a popularity contest, uh, contest when these men are selected to serve our church. A deacon does not run the church. I've known some good men that were ordained to be deacons, and upon being ordained as deacons, it changed their demeanor. It changed the way they, they saw things. It seemed as though they felt that uh, it, was, it was incumbent upon them now to challenge all the finances and all the projects of the church to straighten the pastor out and straighten the church out. I think these three men that have served us and served us well this past year, I think they would testify that to be a deacon serving at Charity Baptist Church, they really didn't do anything they weren't already doing and what most of our men are already doing. It gives us somebody, it gives somebody for me to lean on, and it gives you somebody to look to during these days. A, a deacon is a servant, a servant of the church. A deacon is to serve alongside the pastor, right? Relieving some burden so that the pastor can give himself to ministry, can give himself to the study of the scriptures, and can give himself to prayer, be available if someone needs him, those sorts of things. I would encourage our men who serve as deacons to cultivate the habit when someone has a surgery or someone is sick or someone who is serving, the biblical position would be for the deacon to make contact. In other words, make a phone call, um, make a hospital visit if you can. Your work may not allow you to do that, but cultivate that. A deacon is a servant in the church and a servant to the church. And uh, as a matter of fact, the first deacons were referred to for a number, number of years as table waiters or errand runners. They are referred to a lot of times in these days. Actually, a deacon, a man being willing to serve, and whoever is selected today, I'll make the phone call. And if that brother is not willing to serve, we'll go to the next highest uh, in the selection. You understand the process. But, um, but being a deacon is, is, I think it's an honor when a church selects someone, number one. But then number two, it's not some promotion. Uh, it may be a demotion somewhat because there will be those that will be called calling upon you. Um, so, so a deacon can be, can be, uh, can be a great blessing. I'm out in meetings, not like I once was. I used to preach in uh, 35, 40 churches a year. Uh, through the years that has digressed, I suppose I'll be in, uh, if I can meet the schedule over the next five weeks, about 20 this year, uh, shaping up to be about like what it's been the past few years in my life. But, um, but when I'm away, uh, you, you don't need me all the time. And, and I have no problem with these men making decisions. They, they love the Lord Jesus Christ, the men of our church. They love their families, and they love our church. And I trust they hold the best interest 
of our church at heart. Now, these two passages of Scripture that, uh, that we read are the two primary uh, passages that you go to regarding, uh, regarding, uh, regarding deacons. Let me say two or three more things very briefly. Then we're going to look quickly through these texts. Now, we took about four or five Wednesday nights last year. And the only time we really addressed uh, the position of a deacon or the office of a deacon from the pulpit on a Sunday was the Sunday we ordained our three deacons uh, last year. But, um, but let me say this about the rotation system. Now, I prayed about it. It's about three years ago. I was reading through my Bible. When I came through the book of Acts and I came to Acts 6, that's when the Spirit of God uh, really uh, convicted my heart. I had pretty much the wrong attitude about us having deacons. And it was just simply out of a traditional position. That's all it was. I had no excuse. And I had to repent of that uh, uh, regarding the Holy Spirit. But let me, tell you what a, let me tell you what a rotation system would do for our church. I don't know that we have any bad apples. But if a bad apple were selected, he can serve three years and a church is not in the habit of putting him back on. When he rotates off and becomes inactive that year, oftentimes I'm thinking of one man in particular that I served alongside. And when his three years was up, they never did put him back on because the church saw his behavior, his conduct, heard his gossip, knew how he's stirring behind the scenes. Um, i tell you what a rotation system would do for a church as well. It helps to keep one family from running the show or one clique our best friends, or the same old people all the time. Let me tell you what I suspect. I, I think we would all be blind to not see it. I, I really think that over these first few years of having deacons, I, I would guess the same five or six is going to serve repeatedly. I'd just make that guess. But let me tell you what will happen across time. We've got some young fathers around here. We've got some young men who are faithful to our church that across time, what will transpire, the Lord willing is, is sometimes we'll hold a deacon election and these young men, some of them may get selected and that's good and healthy for a church not to have the same two or three or four calling the shots all the time. You understand what I'm saying when I say that? A lot of trouble in churches come from a deacon body that has sat for too long and have got too used to having some type of power that they think they're supposed to have that the Bible never afforded them. So the rotation system will, uh, will give others an opportunity to serve across time. Now, um, we have a biblical premise for this election today. Look, if you will, Acts 6, verses 1, 2, and 3. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews uh, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Moreover, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, and wisdom whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, I love verse number five, how it begins. The Bible says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude. Really, in these verses, verses 1 through 7, and we stopped our reading there with the first phrase of verse 5, but verses 1 to 7 divide easily into three portions. In verse number 1, you'll see problems arise because of growth in the church. All the time I hear people say when you come to chapter number 6 is that I hear people make the statement that the church had 3,000 at this point, but honestly, it's probably more about like 20,000 
that made up the Jerusalem church at this point. In Acts chapter number 2, you'll remember 3,000 are saved on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, about verse number 47 says that the Lord added daily to the church such as should be saved. A short time thereafter, some 5,000 were saved. So we easily can account for uh, some 8,120 beginning in Acts chapter number 1 through Acts chapter number 5. Counting women and children, very likely there were some 20,000 that would gather around uh, the temple uh, during, the, during these days. And so because of growth, the number exploding in Jerusalem, it's the only place you could get to an apostle, was in Jerusalem at this time. People poured in there. There was, a, there was a famine during that time. People were going hungry. People were being neglected. And so these men were set aside because Peter, um, James, John, Matthew, uh, Thomas, the others, they were spending from sunup to sundown probably taking the monies that were brought to them and trying to help feed people that had great need in their lives. You'll remember the Old Testament account of when Moses would rise in the morning and people would line up as far as you could see. And his father-in-law Jethro was visiting with him. He was spending from sunup to sundown just trying to help iron problems out and solve problems for people. And his father-in-law said that you're wasting your time. You should delegate authority. He sent men. He told him, he advised him to set men over hundreds, men over fifties, and men over tens. And for him to handle only the most important matters that needed to be handled. And so that's what he did at the advising of his father-in-law. And God blessed him uh, in that. Problems arose through growth in the church in verse number one. And there's a legitimate concern here. You see it, don't you? The Bible says, and in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. There were widows who were widows, no doubt, indeed, and they were being neglected. And these men couldn't take care of everything, and they couldn't take care of everyone. The labors were few. The needs were many. And so they need some help is what it boils down to. Another concern is that there's, there's the need for these widows, but then there's a murmuring because of the need. You know, one of the worst ways to handle a problem is to murmur. Because when murmuring begins, you've got a second problem on your hands now. And murmuring usually is not designed to help solve a problem. But it's usually designed to divide and further cause more problem Usually when somebody's murmuring, they want you to come over, they want your ear, and see if you take their side. And that's not how problems are uh, to be handled. So you got two issues when you come to Acts chapter number 6, and these, both of these issues needed a solution. And thank God, a problem is not beyond compare, uh, not, not beyond repair when it comes to the people of God. We have a, a, a wonderful young man and precious young lady that are about to unite in holy matrimony, and we three sat in the office back here some many weeks back, and I mentioned to the both of them, there's not one problem you'll face that Jesus Christ doesn't have the answer for. And you know the same thing uh, takes, uh, it, it rings true for the church of the living God. There's not one problem we have. Usually across time, the Spirit of God will take care of it. This isn't a business. We don't run it like a business. This isn't staffed with office personnel like these factories here local are. We don't use human reasoning. Uh, we, we stay with the Word of God and let the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost Himself, the third person of the triune God, work that across time 
in people's lives. If we jump the gun and put the, put the cart before the horse all times, that does not work out like we want it to work out. Notice the solution provided through the leadership of the apostles, verses 2 to 4. There's a problem. It's actually two problems in verse 1. 2 to 4, the Bible says, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer, and to the ministry of the word. This is a real simple solution to the problem that they had. As a matter of fact, most uh, church problems can be handled very simply uh, if that's what we want to do with a church problem. There's nothing grandiose about the solution to this problem, nothing magnificent, nothing outlandish, nothing, nothing grand about it at all. It's a very sensible solution to the problem. The problem was these elder ladies who were widows are being neglected. They're hungry. That's what it boils down to. And the apostles can't get to every one of them. So he goes to, they go to the church and they tell the church the solution to the problem is seated, in the, seated around you. Uh, you have a problem and the problem needs to be addressed. It is a legitimate problem. And the answer to our problem is not in us because there's not enough of us to go around. But the answer is found among some of the men that are seated right here among you. And so they told them to choose out seven men that could give themselves to secondary matters so that the apostles could give them to what mattered most, and that was their calling uh, in the ministry. Their calling and giving themselves to the ministry of the word and giving themselves uh, to prayer. So the solution to the problem gathered with them every Sunday. Isn't that amazing? And it was right there. They were right there among them. And these men, upon, upon being chosen, and they were not to be just any man. An unfaithful man does not need to serve as a deacon. You don't need to put an unfaithful man's name down today. Now, that's simple and plain. We don't have to huff about it, do we? One of the things that kills leadership is unfaithfulness. A lackadaisical approach uh, to ministry and to church. Um, when, when Amanda and I had four kids at home, for a number of years, we had babies in diapers, and we had toddlers, and we'd grab them and throw them in the trunk of the car and go to church, and uh, I, had to, I, had to, I had to stop Amanda from that, uh, from doing, doing those kids that way. But you know what we knew when God saved us as the best thing ever happened to us? Jesus Christ is the greatest person to ever walk into my life. You know how I feel about my wife. I, I speak of her. If, she doesn't, if she's unable to go with me, first thing I do in the first service is I'll be sure to mention her name. She's my wife, and I want to honor her. But Jesus Christ is the greatest person to ever walk into my life. And I'm telling you, he so changed my life. He changed my language. He changed my hangout. He changed the way I live my life. And... And you show me how you treat the church, and I'll show you how you treat Jesus Christ. You cannot divorce the two. If you love Jesus, you love this church, if you're a member of it. Or if you're a member somewhere else, you love that church, unless you feel led of the Spirit of God to move here or some other place. The expression of our love to Christ is seen in our expression and our faithfulness to the local church. Can I get a witness? That's simple. I don't tithe. When I go, 
I'll be at uh, Calvary Baptist in Taylorsville next Sunday. I won't give my tithe to that church. Our tithe and offering will come here. I'll probably give something as the plate passes me next Sunday. But I tithe through the local church. Uh, the two years I was out of the pastorate, uh, our church, that's where I tithe. I preached somewhere. As a matter of fact, I preached in 100 churches in two years. I might have given an offering every Sunday somewhere else, but my tithe and offering, my general tithe, and all, it went to our local church. I don't send it to a radio program, not a tithe. I don't send it to a TV preacher. And while I'm right here, if you select somebody, I don't know who gives what around here. I don't need to know. I don't want to know. I don't want that coloring uh, my preaching. I don't think it would, but I don't want it coloring my preaching. If you tithe and you do, you do at least that, then you're honoring what the Lord said. And it doesn't matter if your tithe amounts to 50 cents or if your tithe amounts to some $500. Um, when the offering, when the money hits the, the offering plate, it loses its identity. Because someone has to give much, doesn't give them more say-so at Charity Baptist Church than someone who has to give little. God knows how to bring us together from different stations in life and allow us to pool our monies together, right, in what the Bible calls tithes and offerings and take care of the ministry of this church. Um, I almost want to get on baked sales and peanut brittle right here, but I'm going to leave that alone. If we ever get to the place we feel like we got to sell peanut brittle and popcorn balls at Walmart in order to fund the Bible conference, it's time, it, then that means the Bible conference has died, evidently. It's time to bury it. And there may come a time for that. And when those times come, we don't hang on for sentimental reasons to something back in the past. It's not to be an anchor. It's rather to be a rudder to guide us, right? The selecting of these seven men by the congregation. Notice with me, if you will, in verses 5 through 7. I love this, this phrase again, if I may say that, verse number 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. They said, you're right, men. There's no reason for you to leave what God's called you to do when someone else among us can handle this matter. Verse number 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, or Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. In other words, there are more that's going to get saved. More are being saved because of this uh, this settling of this problem, the way that it is handled, God blessed it. It settles the issue that they have. And so uh, this move uh, is a move toward greater organization. The church is not an organization. As a matter of fact, we heard that in our missions conference. I hope that didn't fly by you. It's not an organization. It is an organism. It is a living, breathing, functioning body of Christ. We are the hands, we are the feet, we are the eyes, we are the ears, the heart of Christ here in this community and surrounding. And, but, but the Bible is never anti-organization when it comes to the work of God. As a matter of fact, with more organization, there's more focus can be given to something. And there are people who can mind certain areas of the church, tend to, that is, certain areas of the church, and it frees up me, it frees up everybody else. And that's 
that's very simple, but it, it is what it is. And so organization enables ministries to move, to move forward. Now, this church wasn't perfect. The apostles weren't perfect. These seven men chosen weren't perfect, but they were selected by the church. The apostles didn't select them. That's why I came to you last year as a church body and asked you to do the selecting. And I'm coming to you again this morning asking you to do uh, the same. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter number 3. We'll be brief with this. We're going to go through these verses that we read from 1 Timothy chapter number 3, verses 8 through 13. You'll find the qualifications of a deacon are listed here. The qualifications of a bishop, which is the pastor, those qualifications also are given in uh, verses 1 through 7 of this chapter. You'll find concerning the deacon there are personal qualifications, spiritual qualifications, and family qualifications that he's to meet. In verse number 8, you'll find these personal qualifications. Let's read the verse. We'll look at the phrases then where the Bible says, Likewise, must the deacons be grave, uh, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. Now, first of all, the deacon, the, uh, the, uh, um, the servant that will be chosen, he is to be grave. The word grave denotes a seriousness of mind. The opposite of it would be somebody that's flippant or wishy-washy, in and out, up and down, don't take the things of the Lord serious. Um, a deacon ought to be someone, the Bible says here, that is grave, of serious mind, sober mind, when it comes to the things of God. That doesn't mean he's somebody that walks around with a long face like most of our Baptist friends. Can I get an amen right there? Um, but it does mean that he's to be a man that is, is grave. In other words, he's got a bit of gravity or settledness about him. He's consistent in who he is and in what he does. He's a man who is grave. He's not soon shaken emotionally nor any other way. He can stand his ground. Um, he can look beyond today and see the vision of the church and know that it, it means something to hold our ground right now. Um, um, look, I, I tell you, I've, I, you rarely hear this from me. I have some pet peeves. I, let me give you one of them. I think these men's meetings uh, where they're racing down, having foot races down the aisle and where they're raffling off things in the church sanctuary raffling off whether it be a deer rifle or a handgun. I I really think that's going to come back to bite God's people 20 years from now. I I don't think that, listen, the the sanctuary of the church is not a playground. This is where we meet and open holy scriptures. And we're to treat it as such. And so a deacon ought to be a man, if, if, if God did call me home today and another man come in, no doubt a good man, and he wanted to bring that stuff in, you should at least talk to him. And ask him, where do you think this is going to take us in 15, 20 years? What do you think? How do you think we're shaping the minds of our children here? I don't think you have to give a bunch of men a bunch of door prizes to get them to show up uh, to a men's meeting in, in a church service. I tell you, a good men's meeting takes place on Sunday morning. A lot of churches on Sunday night again, then in our church and other churches on Wednesday nights. That's a good men's meeting. You don't have to get quiet on me. But some of my pet peeves are some of those. A man's to be grave. The Bible says here he's not to be, verse number 8, not double-tongued. That means what you think it means. We say it in the South, he doesn't talk out of both sides of his mouth. He doesn't say one thing to a brother and then get behind his back and say something else. What his speech was on Monday, talk to him about it again on Friday, he'll tell you the same thing. 
He's not double-tongued, the Bible said. He's not to be a gossip. He's not to be a tail-bearer, but a man of integrity, a man who is consistent in his speech. The Bible says not double-tongued. Then the Bible says not given to much wine. So there you guys go for Saturday night. <laughs> Truth of the matter, if you look with me over to chapter number, um, chapter number 5, look with me at verse number 23. You do know that wine, and there ain't no sense in us pitter-pattering around about it. Fermented wine was drank in these days. You do know that, don't you? The water often was polluted. And so they would drink fermented wine. As a matter of fact, look with me at this verse. Look at what Paul tells Timothy after he told him what he told him about the bishop in chapter 3 and the deacon in chapter 3. Watch what he says in chapter 5, verse 23. He says, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. So there was medicinal value to the fermented wine, number one. But a lot of times, these men that's going to serve as a deacon, uh, oftentimes what the hostess of the house would do is she would set before a guest wine. And what he's telling these, uh, giving these qualifications for is so that if you visit a home and the hostess sets that before you, you don't tarry at the cup. You don't overdrink what is placed before you. Now, understand, it's hard for us to understand that culture in that day, but that's the way that it was. And Timothy evidently had some issues, and Paul said, just, he said, drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake. And we don't like that in the Baptist church, but it's right there, and it's been there the whole time. It's right there. And it's been there the whole time. Well, what that means is a deacon is to be of self-control. Look, if you will, also here, he says, not greedy of filthy lucre. In other words, he's to be a man that does not desire monetary gain in a dishonest way. Uh, car salesmen a lot of times get a bad rap, don't they? And a lot gets blamed on the car salesman. You know why you blame him? It's because you know what you would do if you was in his position. I'll tell you something I've, I've tried to never do. I've been asked without any investment, to, to help some guys, two or three along the way. I've been asked to sell everything from Amway to world travel, whatever that was, world, whatever it was. And, and people have often said this, and my wife has heard the pitch. Brother Kevin, as many people as you know, you could make a killing doing this, but I don't want to use you for merchandise. I'd rather have less so that I can continue to do more. I don't want to try to get in your back pocket to help my bank account. You understand what I'm saying? And I sure don't want to be dishonest with you. And a deacon is not to be dishonest in his business dealings. He ought to pay his house payment, pay his car note, pay his insurance, pay his light bill. Pay your bills. That's what it's talking about. Don't take something to yourself uh, trying to, uh, trying to, um, to better yourself and, and being dishonest in doing so. Notice the spiritual qualifications. Verses 9 and 10, we're almost done. Verses 9 and 10, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, and let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Now you notice here in verse number 9, it says, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. In other words, a deacon's to be a man of the faith. Not just to be a man of faith, but a man of the faith. The faith that Jude wrote about that was once delivered unto the saints. The faith, he ought to have no qualms with Genesis to Revelation. He won't understand all of it, 
but he ought to bow to the truth of what's taught in it. And there ought never be a, a time that, that, uh, that it would be said of any man, let alone a deacon or woman as far as that goes too, uh, who belongs to Charity Baptist Church, let it never be said that, that, uh, that I don't believe the book. You don't want a deacon that doesn't believe the doctrines of the Word of God, right? And uh, certainly I, I wouldn't either. But a deacon ought to be a man that has a deep appreciation, a godly reverence, for the Word of God, the teachings of the Word of God. There's some things that we can do without. We learned on the parking lot we actually can get by without a building, didn't we? For a span of time, we learned that we actually can take an offering without doing it traditionally the way that we've been taught to do it over the years. We learned that we could do some things a little bit different and survive. But I'll tell you something we cannot do and survive as a church. We cannot do without truth. We need the truth of the Word of God. That's why we need men to serve as deacons who believe the word of God and embrace it wholeheartedly. Verse number 10 says, And let, them all, let those, uh, these also first be proved, then let them use, not feel, but let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. A deacon, someone selected today, voted for today. Uh, you should have already observed it, his behavior, his conversation. His conduct across time. The Bible says, let them first prove themselves. Prove themselves. They've proven to not be scandalous, to not be double talkers. They've proven that. They've proven themselves to be a faithful believer. That's a principle taught in Scripture, you know. In the Old Testament, you'll remember for 22 years, we preached a year or so ago. You remember we concluded looking at the life of Joseph. For 22 years, he was in hiding, if you will. God had him tucked back uh, for some 22 years, and he served faithfully. And then he's brought out to the forefront. A man ought to first prove himself before he ought to be chosen to, to serve God. You remember in the Old Testament, Joshua. You remember, what, you remember who he served alongside of and behind? It was Moses. Joshua served faithfully for a number of years. He was tucked in the background and was faithful to mind the little things. And then when God called Moses off the scene, Joshua's the man. He's been training. He's been a leader in training all this time. You remember Elisha, one of my favorite Old Testament characters. He washed Elijah's hands. He may have, when Elijah would go into the schools of the prophet, he may have been the one that, that arranged the, the seating in the room. We don't know. We do, we do know he took care of menial tasks, and God had him in preparation. Because when you go to 2 Kings chapter 2, God's going to take Elijah out in a whirlwind, in a chariot of fire, and horses of fire. And Elijah's mantle fell, and Elisha picked it up, smote the waters of the Jordan, and they parted just like they had for Elijah. So a man ought to first be proved. He ought to first be proved. In other words, he ought to have already been tested, proving himself. Notice, if you will, the family qualifications, verses 11 and 12. And with this, I'm done. The Bible says, even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. Now, concerning their wives, verse number 11 and verse, well, verse number 11, of course, the question surfaces, why their wives? Why do we consider their wives? Well, the reason why is because they attend church together. A deacon is sit by his wife in church. They serve God together. They're visible uh, together. 
And they'll serve alongside each other. And not only is he to be gray, but she's to be gray. Serious-minded. A sober approach to the things of God. The Bible says that she uh, is not to be slanderers. Does not engage in fault-finding. Does not engage in assassinating somebody's character. She's not to be a gossip nor tale-bearer. She's not to be involved in drama and trouble all the time. The Bible says that she's to be sober. That is, of calm soul, a peaceful spirit. The Bible says that she's to be faithful in all things. That is, committed to our blessed Lord. Committed to her own husband. Committed to her children. Committed to her church. Completely trustworthy as a wife, as a mother, as a believer, and as a church member. A deacon's wife uh, can't serve alongside her husband if she isn't here. That's simple enough, isn't it? Family qualifications concerning the wife. Verse 11, concerning the family. Verse 12, the husband of one wife. God has placed this priority on the deacon. Ruling their children well. Superintending while they're in the home. Presiding over. Um, I about put you to sleep already. Let me say it like this. Uh, keeping them in line. They may move to, to Belgium when they get out of the house and turn 18. But while they're in there. He's to superintend over his children and to do it well. Ruling their own house as well. Again, that can go back to paying your bills and your debts and a number of other things. Lastly, verse 13, a man who serves well as a deacon, the Bible says, verse number 13, purchase to themselves a good degree. That is a good standing, a good testimony, and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, he can, he can prove to you, and across time, God will give him great boldness as he serves you. As he serves the Lord. Miss Angie, would you come to the piano, please? It's a little bit different type of a message for a Sunday morning. But there could be someone here before we pass these pieces of paper out. There could be someone here that has a need. You could be lost here today. And your need is the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning during this invitation. You may be here as a child of God. And there's some burden you carry. And you feel the need to gather around this altar here in the church and pray over your needs and take them to Christ in prayer. And we want to encourage you to do this and give you an opportunity to do this as we stand together and Miss Angie plays.